You guys know HBO. A lot of the best drama series in television history have come out of them. And they've got a new one premiering this Sunday. It's called Succession. Uh, it's from Adam McKay, who was the director of The Big Short, and from uh, Jesse Armstrong, who was the writer of In the Loop. Uh, those are two great movies about finance and politics. They're amazing. You should check them out if you haven't seen them, frankly. But if you have seen them, you know how exciting it is that they're working together on this project. So the project, it's called Succession. This is the story of the Roy family. Their owners are one of the biggest media companies in the world. And then when family patriarch Logan decides he's not quite ready to retire, his adult children are going to fight to figure out where they fit in. Uh, so it ties into a lot of real-world themes that, that we have here, but it's fiction, compelling stories. Uh, it's set in the boardrooms and penthouse apartments of New York City. Succession explores power, politics, money, and family in the cutthroat corporate world. Succession airs Sunday nights at 10 p.m., and it's only on HBO. I'm like very disoriented <laughs> by the fact that it's Tuesday right now, so. It's confusing. You lose a whole day. <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We've got Sarah Cliff with us today. And we are joined today by Libby Nelson, uh, one of our fantastic editors on the politics and policy team, but formerly in a, in a, in a prior life, uh, an education uh, reporter and, and an education podcaster even. I Yes, and a, a Weeds education guest long in the past. This is my first Weeds reappearance since the biweekly weeds began. So this right. is very exciting. So we wanted to uh, uh, talk about an education topic. That's why we have Libby with us. Charter schools uh, is like a big issue. Uh, there are a lot of different kinds of charter schools, a lot of different state laws. I think the like super high level overview of charter schools in general is that on average, they are about average. There's a lot of public schools. There's a lot of charter schools. There's a lot of difference. But the policy conversation among I don't know, like fancy policy people tends to focus in on a sort of relatively small number of charter school networks that exist, deliberately exist in big cities, in low-income neighborhoods that are mission-driven. We're going to take poor, predominantly uh, – children of color and we're going to, you know, show that like education can uplift them and, and transcend everything. And they have, at least in the terms used by education reformers, they have like the data behind them that, mm -hmm. that KIPP and um, some of these other networks, they, they have good test scores and pretty – as much as you can tell with rigorous experimental evaluation based on lotteries, who gets in, who gets out, the – Graduates of these uh, no excuses charter school, urban charter schools, they do better on standardized tests than similar kids in traditional public schools. They enroll in college at higher rates. They complete college at somewhat higher rates. And it's hard to get really solid experimental data on whole life outcomes because you would need like 50 years. But it's suggestive that it at least to some extent works in those terms. And yet – Many, many points of controversy remain. Many points of controversy do remain. I would say that I think um, anything after enrolling in college is also the jury is still somewhat out, if only because 
while it feels to me like we have been covering and arguing about charter schools forever, this is still a relatively new movement. And so as much data as we have now on college graduation and later life outcomes, there is going to be a lot more in like five to 10 years as we start to see more and more students who have been all the way through charter schools sort of going out into the this world. This is the, the tragic nature of trying to evaluate education policy is that there's like, there's like a huge <laughs> lag. Right? Wait, wait 50 years and we'll get back to you. Yes, come back to the weeds in 20... Um, <laughs> Well, and then it's so. like cities have elections like every two to four years, right? right? Where they have to debate these things. But yeah, so I mean, that's that's a good point. I mean, we do see oftentimes with all kinds of childhood interventions, effects that fade out. So, so I would find, find it like helpful to have Libby talk through a little bit, kind of like where these schools are, what their philosophy is, and like what we know from the research that exists so far, even though it's not like everything, but like what what is the scope of like this part of the charter school debate? Yeah, I would say these schools, for the most part, to generalize pretty broadly, exist in cities, in urban centers, and sort of the larger the city, usually the larger the presence and the larger the debate there is about them. They're called no excuses schools because one of the sort of organizing ideas at one particular chain was that like poverty should not be used as an excuse for lack of educational achievement. That term itself is actually really controversial for like sort of obvious reasons. But they're sort of based on this idea that like you are going to have this very rigorous and disciplined environment. A lot of times if the lessons are not scripted, there are like very specific things that teachers are supposed to do. There are very specific behaviors that they're supposed to teach. To a degree, they're sort of like teaching you how to school as well as teaching you math or teaching you reading. So like the kids are often like they're supposed to be tracking the teacher with their eyes. There are all of these behaviors that they focus on as well. And so like a lot of this conversation is about how much of those behaviors are successful. The weird thing about these schools is like if you talk about charter schools with people – who don't spend a lot of time with education, like this is probably what they think of. They're actually like a relatively small or at least like not the majority of the charter school movement. Actually, we should maybe back this out. Just, just, Vox style. Like, yeah, let's like, back all like, the way back like, up. Like, like, what's a charter school? What is a charter school? A charter school is a school that is publicly funded but is privately run. Companies or nonprofit groups or other outside actors can, like, build a school with their roles that does not have to follow the rules of the school district in terms of anything from, like, teachers, teacher hiring, uh, length of school day, like any of the sort of normal things that are usually established school by school by school. But the difference, or at least the the big difference between this and a voucher program where we give you money to go to private school is that charter schools, at least I think all the schools that are called charter schools, have to sort of admit people on an equitable basis. Yeah, and they can't and they have a little bit more formal oversight usually like you can't just like start up a school and have people bring their public school money to you. But charters and school vouchers all sort of are part of this idea that like there should be choices beyond just the neighborhood public school uh, for kids and their families. Right. But but so like with with the charter school like in theory at least and sometimes in practice mm-hmm. you could lose your charter. You can't say, okay, to get into this school, you need to pass a test. Right, right. And like the bulk of charters exist just in states that have loose chartering rules and people start them for all kinds of reasons. Right. And these sort of like big city charter school networks are – they loom large in the media because they – I mean, there's a lot of them in D.C. There's a lot in New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. Chicago yeah. They're like where journalists live. Charter schools are often uh, 
shall we say, not beloved by teachers unions who see them as taking money out of the unionized school systems. And you have the most like ideologically advanced teachers unions also tend to be in these big city districts where people will I, I don't want to put it the wrong way, but like they will develop the most sophisticated like like real reasons why this is bad rather than just kind of hazy grumbling, right? The, the New York, Chicago, Los Angeles teachers unions are very sophisticated operations. So there's like a there's like a high level political fight in big cities. Yeah, I would say they also, for the same reason, like loom large within the Democratic Party because they are in these cities. There was until fairly recently, like a fairly large conversation about education and like the best approach to education within the Democratic Party that's faded a little bit. But like for a lot of reasons, these particular chains and their particular approach loom larger than they might in terms of numbers. Well, I think also the particular things you hear, and this kind of is how we started planning this episode, is there was a story from the NPR station in Chicago about a chain, a chain of charter schools that has become much, much larger over the past few years. It started as one story by a reporter. A lot of people started writing into this reporter and kind of came to this anecdote where some girls there reported that they were not given adequate bathroom breaks during their periods, that they were told they could tie a sweatshirt around their waist. There was a at least one of the charter schools, a plan to switch from khakis as part of the uniform to black pants, which some saw as obviously an absurd way to deal with this problem of girls bleeding through their pants was just to change the color of the pants so it's less obvious. So I think that is one of the things that is also, I mean, I think it's definitely the geography of these schools too, but these discipline measures that it seems like these ones with them, you know, girls not having adequate time to go to the bathroom during their period, like clearly cross a line, but like where that line is drawn. I think some of these particular examples in the New York Times that some reporting on this too. And I think a video that went pretty viral about maybe a year or so ago of a, of a teacher reprimanding a child. So I think it is the type of discipline that they offer that often brings them into like the charter controversy and kind of like makes them the face of the charter school debate as a way as well. Yeah, I think the way that this all links together is, as we were talking about at the beginning, like we know some things about their outcomes. There are some things we just aren't going to know. But there are also sort of and often outside of like the quote unquote policy and research conversations, there are other things going on with these schools that are becoming like increasingly reported on, noticed, talked about. Um, And I would say that's the discipline controversies and like their method, these schools' methods of discipline and how appropriate they are, how much they have to do with their success. And then also a separate but related conversation about segregation um, and the fact that these schools do tend to be absolutely overwhelmingly uh, populated by black and Latino students. But I mean, I think I, I think to understand the context for this, it's important to get that there's like a basic political economy issue with charter schools, right? Which mm-hmm. is that like they they take money out of the traditional public school system and put it into charter networks, like by design inherently. It could be the greatest school in the world. In fact, the better the schools are and the more everybody wants to enroll in them, the more they're going to take money out of the public system. So people invested in the public system don't like this idea and so they criticize it. And you developed first a critique around, well, is this actually any good, right? And then as evidence came in, it's like, yeah, no, the academic performance is improved. And then there were a lot of controversies around, well, is there some 
sort of shady statistical games going on here. And I think that doesn't really pan out. Like, like it holds up no, like, you know, good experiments based on random lotteries. Like they show good results for kids. The discipline controversy is now like – and the segregation controversy, which in particular is odd because it sort of contradicts controversy number two, are this like third wave of urban charter network criticism where now it's like, OK, perhaps the academic results are good and it's legitimate, but the the price is too high. And I think in the case of this uh, – Noble, there's Noble Academy mm-hmm. yeah. s- story from Chicago. Like the price clearly is too high, right? I mean, like if somebody said, "Okay, we're going to adopt a policy in which girls are like routinely humiliated in this way," and then it's like, "Well, but you know, you have like two halves of a standard DV." Right? Like that's a, that's yeah. not an adequate response. But can I right? say, just to like under like to ground that conference, like what? Is the research on the outcomes like how strong is it? You know, I know we mentioned it's like not everything past college, but like, what do we actually know about how these particular networks compare to traditional public schools? The the research on the network or the research on the outcomes is pretty strong. I mean, you're often looking at grade levels, um, full standard deviations of math and reading achievement. There are some. um, I think it's the Harlem Children's Zone. I was actually just rereading this research uh, in New York. That could like the level of growth was basically enough to eliminate the racial achievement gap. I mean, they are pretty significant in terms of reading and math scores, especially compared to students at the traditional public schools within that district around the same time. And I I think like how attributable this is, we've seen this a little bit with Noble, but really Success Academy in New York, uh, which had the teacher gripping up a student, like a Mm -hmm. kindergarten or first graders math paper a few years ago that went viral is really where you've seen these conversations because their outcomes have been so good and the controversy around the techniques that they have used to get there has been so loud um, that I think that's really like the paradigmatic one here. Like they, among charter supporters, are like – the darling of how good they are and how good their test scores are. Um, but they also have this like low rolling, slow boil of controversies kind of always under the surface that occasionally will like bubble up through a viral video. So we're, we're talking here about Success Academy in New York, um, Noble in Chicago. Kip, Kip is probably a lot the, of places. the biggest, the most, the most sort of famous. Are there other sort of big names? Those because- are the big names that come to mind. Um, and these can pop up at sort of smaller uh, or more individual places as well. But if you're talking about sort of the no excuses uh, genre of charter schools, these, these are the really big ones and also the ones that are expanding, um, which I think is an important part of this. I mean, so how do you cover these? Like, how do you think of this? I don't know. Do you think of it as like a trade-off between discipline and outcomes? Or like, I'm just curious, like you've thought about this more than the two of us and like how you think about these two things working together. Yeah, I've thought about it a lot lately. And I think my thinking on it has changed somewhat. I used to feel that these discipline stories were very anecdotal. They didn't ever really break through in the policy conversation, which was always about like test scores and funding and the statistical, like the statistical logic of whether this made sense. And I think particularly in DC and in at, like think tanks and people who study these, they're always was like, well, there are always going to be some bad apples and some places that go too far. And obviously it's very bad, but it's not necessarily like a judgment on the movement. 
there have been enough of these types of stories now, and they still remain very anecdotal, but every time one comes out, everybody I know who taught in a charter school, like, says, yeah, seems right. Like, there's a number of them. I think the thing that to me is striking is the degree to which the policy conversation so far doesn't acknowledge this as a trade-off. And the, the defense sort of is like, these schools have good discipline, and it's one of the reasons they achieve results. And, you know, individual teachers, like, I, I went to public school. I can certainly tell stories of individual teachers who went too far and had viral videos existed, you know, probably would have been in one. But I don't think there's always a lot of honesty about, like, this is clearly going to happen. And we need to have sort of a forthright conversation about, is this just baked into this model? I think it tends much more to be shoved to the side or to happen in like two totally separate conversations. Like there's one among sort of charter skeptics who tend to be also concerned about social justice and education. And they talk a lot about discipline. And then there's sort of the like education reform pro-charter aspect. And no one is saying this is good. Like no one is saying these things should happen. But it doesn't feel like these two conversations cross. And I would say is there, like I have thought a lot lately about how much more converse, how much more attention I paid to the outcome side of the conversation than to the discipline side, because I think there are some interesting questions to be asked here about this model. And, you know, while there's a there's a version of it in which like nobody is saying this is good. Right. Yeah. I mean, like there are certainly like the most extreme incidents that go the most viral, you know, People even on the pro-charter side will say like, yeah, OK, yeah, like that, that went too far. And then it is also true, right, that there's like 80 bajillion schools in America and they each have multiple teachers. And it's like you're never going to have a system in which like nothing ever goes wrong. But to me, this is a, an interesting topic because there is kind of like a higher synthesis mm -hmm. of what the charter proponents and the critics are saying here, right, that like – in the no excuses slogan, it's like, well, what are the excuses, right? Mm -hmm. And if you talk to like less political public school teachers uh, just about what's going on, like it is true. Like they offer a lot of what you could pejoratively term, quote unquote, excuses mm -hmm. for poor outcomes in their students, typically pointing to the student's parents and saying that, look, like if kids are not raised at home to value education and to listen to and respect educators, that there is not that much that they can do as classroom teachers to like make them do that. And you see like, look, it really – it comes back to the parents. you know. And that's not like a policy proposal. I don't think they would characterize it as an excuse. But you might say, OK, they are making excuses. They are saying it's the parents' fault. We can't do anything for the kids. The no excuses model is like very literally saying we will not accept that as an excuse. We are going to do it instead. And we are going to provide a model of education that – bougie, educated parents would not want for their kids because we are trying to do something in lieu of the parents, right? Instead of taking a low-income, low socioeconomic status community and crafting a school for them that looks like an idealized version of a, you know, good public school in the suburbs, you create this thing that looks like a drill camp because you are saying, well, there's going to be no excuses, right? Like right. it's – that's why. And like there, there there, really is like a, like a hardcore of tension there. Like what do you do about the fact that like there are families and like whole communities full of families that do not have – 
certain like norms and behaviors instilled and like this is one answer but a lot of people look at it and they're like whoa yeah and I think I want to also not paint with too broad of a brush here because there's that degree of it there also are and this comes up a lot in sort of charter proponents discussions of this there are parents who pick these schools on purpose because they like the discipline who are within those communities and say look you know I look at the traditional public school and it's a mess and the kids are doing this and that and like I go to the school and the kids are all in uniforms and sitting in neat rows and paying attention. And like it does prevent this – like it presents this like very visual order. And there certainly are parents who think, you well, know, there's often lotteries. There's, there's often yeah. more parents who want this. Exactly. There are more parents who want this than, than – yeah, than, than have um, the ability to, to get their kids into it. But the thing – I think the thing that I've been thinking about a lot is not even like the individual kids who are caught up in these like particularly bad ones. But it's about sort of – it's something that's much more difficult to measure, but it's like, what does that environment, mm-hmm. what messages does that environment send? What kind of effect does that have even on the kids who, fo- who follow the rules and succeed? And one reason I'm looking forward to more and more students aging out of the system is not just for the data, but also for like the ability to reflect back on that and be like, you know, we were treated sort of like prisoners and we our math test scores were really good. And I don't know if the answer is like it was worth it or it wasn't worth it. But I think it's a question worth asking. All right, let's take a break. Come back to this. Everybody's got a lot of stuff to do in life, a lot of tasks, big and small, that, you know, kind of stop you from being the best version of yourself. And now Finn is a high-quality, on-demand assistant that can handle the administrative aspects of life, declutter your to-do list, keep you focused on what matters most. Thousands of busy people already rely on Finn to handle tasks like scheduling meetings, booking travel, buying gifts, or even more complex jobs like creating a website or hiring a freelancer. They take care of administrative tasks so you can be more productive. It lets you be a superhuman. If you watch... Mad Men or something, you know, it's like you maybe dream, maybe I should have an assistant like that, but no one can afford it. Finn is a way you can do it. They can take care of like all the aspects of a trip, you know, flights, dinner reservations, a hotel within minutes of where you want to be. They make it work in a way that scales and it's affordable by mixing the best of human and artificial intelligence to deliver a top flight service to manage your calendar, book appointments, take care of travel plans, pay bills, research your byproducts, everything a great assistant can do. So one thing I did with it, I need to get my haircut, frankly, more regularly than I do. So I asked Finn to schedule a haircut for me on a regular short-term basis, and they handled booking with the guy who cuts my hair, but also look at my calendar, so they're sure to find a time when we are both available, and that roughly meets the sort of tempo that I want to do it at, so you don't need to spend your time recruiting, training, and managing an assistant. Finn can do it all. On average, Finn can save you 200 hours a year, Uh, so if you're someone who doesn't have uh, 40 hours of work for an assistant every week, with Finn, you only pay for what you use, which is what's really convenient. So once you try Finn, they think you're really going to love it. So as a listener to The Weeds, they've arranged for you all to try Finn for free. Just use our special link, finn.com slash weeds. That's finn.com slash weeds to try Finn for free. Finn, F-I-N dot com slash weeds. So this Friday is National Gun Violence Awareness Day and the start of Wear Orange Weekend. Uh, People around the country are going to be coming together with a simple message to say that there's more that we can do to end gun violence. Every year, every town for gun safety and a coalition of partners call on Americans to wear orange to honor the more than 90 lives cut short by gun violence every day and to demand action toward a future free from gun violence. So join the movement by wearing orange this Friday, June 1st, and post your pictures online using the hashtag wear orange to show you're committed to ending gun violence. 
One other thing, you know, I've been thinking about reading back through a lot of these stories, preparing for this episode, is kind of what happens to teachers in this system as well. Because I think one of the things you see is, and, you know, Libby, you can walk us through if this is right, is a lot more turnover and burnout. That one of the things, I think you end up with a lot of Teach for America folks at these schools. And, you know, I think probably all of us have friends who did for Teach for America and found it very stressful. And you do a lot of work after work and your hours are essentially like often similar to like a banking job in downtown Manhattan, except you're making a fraction of that money. And one of the things that seems to be, I mean, it is not like, it does not seem inherent to the no excuses model, but in order, or maybe it is because in order to find teachers who are okay putting up with that kind of schedule, it tends to be like younger, newer, you know, has this energy you know, I think my mom has been a paraeducator for 30 years, and one of the things she likes about it is a very predictable schedule. And, like, she does it year after year. She's probably much better at it than she was 15 years ago. But you see a lot more burnout. And that seems like a really difficult situation to kind of put less experienced educators in charge of this discipline approach that I imagine would be really, really challenging to implement, something you'd probably get better at in time, but then you don't have that continuation year over year. And it seems like, you know, it's not like Kip says we only have teachers for X years, but it seems like it might almost be baked into the model given like the expectations of the teachers in those situations. I think it is, but I think it's also baked in the model the other direction, which is like one of the things about about these charter networks is they tend to be much more top down than like a traditional public school. Like sometimes they will have like other teachers who are developing the lesson plans and they just hand them out. And to a degree, that makes sense if what you know, if what you're doing is working with a lot of people in their first, second, third year of teaching who are still learning the ropes, who, like, don't even necessarily, you know, have a grasp on, like, classroom discipline. It's sort of like giving them formulas of, like, this is what you're going to do in this situation. This is what you're going to do in this situation. Like, and I think for the staff, that's incredibly helpful. But you do get into this chicken or egg of, like, are they burning out because they work really hard? They work really long hours. Like, teaching can be an emotionally difficult profession. Um or is the system sort of built for the idea that, like, you're going to always have people in there, you know, the bulk of people uh, who are fairly inexperienced. And once you get more experienced, like, you don't want to do that anymore. You want to go somewhere with a little bit more autonomy. Um, and there are ways to move up where, like, you can become the person who makes the lesson plans. But what if, if what you want is to be, like, a teacher of 20 years of experience who can totally run their own classroom? Like, it's not necessarily going to be the best environment for you. And so you do see a good amount of turnover that I think perpetuates this and probably um, – in some cases contributes, although I should say that I know there have been some of these really high-profile cases have involved teachers who have been there a while or who are considered to be, like, stars of the system. And so it's not always just, like, a first-year teacher getting overwhelmed, which is a thing that could happen anywhere. And I think – I mean, this speaks to – I mean, both the discipline and the the sort of career path or like thereof, right? It's a, it's a philosophical disagreement about what the education system is – Right. That like there's a vision, a sort of bucolic vision of education, right, in which like the schools are nice places, the teachers are nice people. They when, you know, Miss um, Nelson runs her classroom, mm. uh, you are instilling a lifelong love of learning in the children and everything is going to be be glorious. And then there's like another vision of 
education in which like the accumulation of human capital is a necessary ingredient for success in a modern economy <laughs> and we need to like develop scalable lesson plans with validated methods that create the outcomes that we want to see, right? right. And option number two, just like it sounds way worse, I think. You know, like if you if you like put it plainly, like what they are trying to do. It like it it doesn't sound great. And you can you can make it sound bad by using like advanced vocabulary about like reconstruction of a neoliberal subject or, or whatever. Or just like common sense, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of rote learning. There's a lot of focus on like basic discipline. There's like not a lot of time to like explore your passions, right? But then on the other side, there's just the like question of reality, which is like are large urban public school systems generating bucolic educational outcomes or are they really, really crappy and we need to do something different other than like repeat cliches about love of learning and, and blah, 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 blah. And that's just another case where it's like I, I think like, like the, the trade-off is really real, right? Like a nice story that Kip could tell would be that their very successful model is based on like making things awesome and exactly how we all think schools should be. And like the reality is like quite different. Like it seems to work pretty well, but it's like it's it's grim. Yeah, and I will say I feel like I've been very negative because this is honestly something I'm like still thinking through a lot. But if you go into these classrooms, there is often like it is also hard to have that like bucolic love of learning environment in a classroom that is chaos or where like other students are being disruptive. And there are like if you go in and you see these lessons or you talk to people who've gone in and observed like going with all of these techniques, there also are like really deep learning going on and really good discussions, even with kids at a younger age that you might not see elsewhere. And so the degree to which these things are linked to me is like really interesting. And there are some charters that are trying to sort of innovate some on the discipline and rigor side while not sort of changing the academic side. And I think that is probably where I would like to see more schools go is to really like take each piece of this apart and be like, are these bathroom rules super critical right. to achieving our so, mission? Like, what does that look like, like innovating on the discipline side right now? It's sort of like reconsidering how many of these roles are necessary or how they approach them. So like a lot of charters, even the ones that get attention for this, um, have scaled back some of their policies. Like Noble used to charge you for getting detention. And that's something that no longer happens, which seems good if you're working with primarily a low-income population. But sort of being open and flexible to the idea that like maybe everything that we're doing is not necessarily the reason we're successful and could we do more like reconciliation oriented stuff instead of detention? Could we give kids more chances? Are there sort of um, other ways to solve problems that aren't like removing someone from the classroom and sort of using those um, as an, like an, another ability to experiment? And since charter schools are supposed to be experiments in the first place, like I think that's something that's really promising. So I see as like a big root of this issue. Like did, did you see the story in uh, – in New York a couple weeks ago about the parents on the Upper West Side yes. who were freaking out about kids from Harlem basically coming to their public school. And 
I see this in in my neighborhood all the time. I mean, not to go like too deep into my life, but I but I live in like a gentrifying neighborhood that's like become pretty fancy, but has some Section Eight buildings and other public housing. It's a majority minority public school. Parents on the playground. Uh, you know, there's like a lot of discussion about like should should we enroll our kids in this local school? Jose is going to go in in the fall, and people will start talking in very euphemistic terms about what their concerns are. And they're like, well, you know, the neighborhood's changed a lot. The school's changing. And you're like, oh, yeah, what, like, what's, what's changing about it, right? <laughs> um, and, like, I don't think that these Upper West Side liberal parents or Logan Circle liberal parents, they're not, like, in the grips of, like, racial terror. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason they're living in urban neighborhoods in the first place, right? It's not like... I don't know, some like crazy contagion theory. It's like they are worried about school discipline issues and they're worried in a very classed and racialized way, right? But like this is the thing that they, they – like oftentimes the exact same people who would be very critical of the extremely harsh discipline at urban charters like also don't want – Kids from poor backgrounds, kids who they perceive may come to school with social problems to, like, come in and somehow, like, pollute their classrooms. And as long as you have that, right, like, intense demand for segregation in the public school system from the people with the most political clout, I just, like, I don't feel like there's a great solution you know it's like it's like the the no excuses charter solution does not seem great to me but like also just like dumping kids into an overwhelmed low performing public school system doesn't seem great and it's like there's a great like twitter take of like well what we really should do is integrate the schools but it's like the stakeholders really don't want to do that yeah, I think I think there's two things. There's sort of the larger segregation and education conversation that's revived itself somewhat over the past few years and that's intersecting in really interesting and ways with the charter movement that we should probably talk about. And the other is just like, I don't know, there's a lot of hypocrisy in education, among, yeah. <laughs> especially among white progressive-ish people. And it's at both ends. It's the people who like – would say that they're totally in favor of integration until it's their school. And then there's sort of the other end of it of like folks who will praise to the heavens, like charter schools that they would not would send, never their, send kids their kids to. to right. uh, you see it in higher education with people who are like, not everybody should go to college. But like my kids for sure are going to go to college. It's um, And I think it's just human nature. Like what you think is good for your society and what you think is good for your individual child, like may not always be the same thing. But it, it is another layer that makes this like – that and the lack of super clear solutions make this a frustrating and interesting topic. But um, it, it feels like something that kind of stretches all across a lot of policy issues we talk about. And I don't think this is like a hugely um, insightful revelation, but a lot of the people like making the policy decisions are making those knowing expressly that they are never going to use the thing that they are creating, even though they can say like, look, it's great test scores and like it's doing something good for the greater Good, but I feel like the, like this stretches across a lot of different domestic policies where, you know, I think a lot, like in the space I cover a lot, I think, I, I don't know if people would trade their insurance at work for Medicaid coverage, even though like there's polling that shows Medicaid coverage is actually more popular, um, that a lot of the policy making is being done by people who are not the intended recipients of the program. And that, I don't know, I think that leads to some, you know, 
disparate outcomes in terms of like what policies are actually set up for the people who will be using those, those programs. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what's strange in K-12 public education, though, is that like this is something that in the United States of public service that is like formally organized on a universalistic basis, right? So the, the segregation charter angle, you know, it's worth talking about, right? So, you know, people will look like like at D.C. and like the charter schools in, in D.C. are like super duper duper overwhelmingly um, African-American. I think that's true of, of most of these kind of networks that gets leveled as a, as a criticism against them. If they were disproportionately white, that would also be leveled as a criticism against them. And that does happen with some charters in some places, usually not this type of school. Right. Um, but it usually is not only overwhelmingly non-white, but like overwhelmingly one race. Like one thing that's happening with Noble in Chicago is Noble is shifting from serving like an overwhelmingly Latino population to a black and Latino population. But yeah. Like these tend – they tend to be – I think racially isolated is the technical ah. term of art that is used here. But they tend to be racially isolated. But it's it's actually the traditional public schools that are exclusionary. In these cities, right? So, like, in Washington, D.C., like, the thing to do is to attend an elementary school that feeds into a middle school that feeds into Woodrow Wilson High School in Ward 3. And to get into such an elementary school, you must buy a house in certain neighborhoods. And, like, if you grow up in a different neighborhood, you may not attend these schools, right? And it's the same in New York, right? Like that's the whole, there's an endless procession of stories in the uh, Times Metro section about different neighborhoods in Brooklyn and the like minute politics of where the school boundary lines are because the schools are, they're, they're public, but they're sort of like the private property of the people who live in the neighborhoods. The charter schools, at least formally speaking, have to accept whoever wants to come but they like are marketed in certain ways. I mean, it's it's again, it's like it's I would say troubling on both sides of the coin. I think that's true. And I think there's sort of two criticisms of overwhelmingly segregated schools, one of which that is just like on a philosophical level bad to not expose children to people of different races. The other is that like historically they've obviously had much worse outcomes, which is interesting and hard to square with sort of the idea that these um charters are going into residentially segregated, de, fa uh, de facto residentially segregated urban neighborhoods on purpose and like trying to get good, better outcomes for kids of color specifically. And so it's kind of, it's the most circular argument of them being like, well, these, these you know, the critics are like, well, these schools are racially isolated and, and supporters saying that's a little bit the point and like going sort of around in circles on that forever. Um, there are not, even in districts that are getting more diverse, there are not as many at least is not as many well-publicized sort of attempts to create. Like, you could create an intentionally integrated charter school in D.C. Yes. Um, that, like, tries to attract kids from west of the park and kids from the 8th Ward. But there are not as many of those, or they do not get the press of the ones that are serving more specific populations. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. It's, I think, it seems like someone should try. Yeah, I mean, I would think there would be, you know, it may be an indictment that, like, there's not a lot of demand for that. But maybe there is, and no one's tried it. I mean, there's a lot of residential segregation in the United States, but most district school boundaries are, like, further gerrymandered mm -hmm. beyond that to, like, induce extra segregation. You could do the opposite. Um, you could have more lottery admission to public high school. I mean, I I think for, like, first graders sort of have to go to school near their house 
for logistical reasons. Um, but like I went on the subway to high school. Like pe- people can do that. Te- Buses exist. Te- te- teenagers can move about a city. I'm confident. It's a strange level of defeatism, I think, around some of the the charter creation. Although I think in part it's a response to the original like cream skimming arguments that some people wanted to go in and be like, no, like mm-hmm. we can craft a super segregated, ultra high poverty school and like we'll show you. But I think there hasn't been a lot of like reflection on like is that is that actually a good idea? Like is that a model of education that people embrace? Like, is that how we want our society to work? And like, I don't think that we do. Yeah, I think the underlying conversation of all of this is like, we talk a lot. And as a policy oriented oriented journalist, I would write about like the things that are very easy to measure, which is like reading and math test scores. But I think we're coming to sort of a more holistic concern about like the other things that go into education in part perhaps in part because nationally reading and math test scores have stalled out a little bit over the past few years. Like, and it's, I think it's much harder to make policy decisions about stuff like that because it is a much more philosophical conversation about, like, what should a school be, which is a lot harder than, like, what is going to raise the math test, math test scores Because I think a lot of it's more, like, what sort of humans are coming out right. of your school, which is a lot harder to measure on a scale um, than, than a score. Maybe. Yeah, and, and as Libby was saying, I mean, it'll be interesting to see once, once we have, you know, 25, 30-year-olds who can— like articulate yeah. their feelings about all this. Like what what what's their how do people bear witness to to this situation? Time for a white paper? Let's do it. Let's take a break and then come back to our white paper. You know, I think most of us, once we become responsible adults, we want to protect our home with a home security system, but you would also like to have some measure of privacy. But how many home security companies are actually thinking, how can we protect your home and protect your privacy? That's what's so great about Simply Safe. Uh, they obsess over details in a way that no other home security company does. As an example, they've got a camera you can control from your phone, but they want to protect your home and your privacy. So they have this brilliant idea. They've got a privacy shutter for your camera, but they didn't just want like a shutter. They wanted you to be able to hear it click so you know it's closed. And they wanted to have a light on so you could easily tell when it's on. And they needed it to work for a long time to be durable. So Simply Safe, they put in the work testing different metals and hinge design for months and months and months. They create an efficient home security camera with a thin, lightweight aluminum privacy shutter that will work every time. Its details really matter. And that's what sets Simply Safe apart, keeps your family safe. So they're not just home security, it's home security done right. Check out Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com slash weeds. That's simplysafe.com slash weeds to learn more about Simply Safe today. Simplysafe.com slash weeds. Okay, so if you're like me, you don't have that much time. You do enjoy relaxing with books sometimes, but you have like a big, ever-expanding list of books that people are suggesting you need to read, and, and you can never get to all of it. So our sponsor, Blinkist, has solved your long list of must-reads once and for all. This is an app. It takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to the most impactful elements, so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes, all on your phone. So with Blinkist, you expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Uh, plus, you can listen anywhere while driving or walking to the office or just in the morning while you're relaxing a little bit. So the Blinkist library is massive. They've got timeless classics like Think and Grow Rich and something really useful is current bestsellers like Fire and Fury. You get a quick download like what is in this book that everybody's talking about. A personal recommendation of mine is check out The Worry-Free Mind by Bill Wade and, and Carol Kershaw Ed. You get a quick download of what this is all about and it'll improve your life. So Blinkist is constantly curating and adding new titles from best of lists so you're always getting the most powerful ideas in a made-for-mobile format. 
5 million people are using Blinkist to expand their minds 15 minutes at a time. So get started today. They've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash weeds to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist dot com slash weeds to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan. Blinkist dot com slash weeds. Okay, we got here Toxic Truth, Lead and Fertility by Karen Clay, Margarita Portnick, and Edson Severini. Uh, these are uh, three professors from Carnegie Mellon. Um, they are looking at lead exposure, exploiting some of the same kinds of things that that other authors have used. The interstate highway system uh, and the Clean Air Act were both rolled out in sort of disparate geography. Uh, so they let you have time series data on where lead accumulated in different places. Uh, we've talked before about studies that show uh, lead's impact on child development. Um, what they are finding is that there's a significant impact on fertility. Uh, reductions in, in airborne lead between 1978 and 1988 increased fertility rates uh, meaningfully. And then higher lead in topsoil decreased fertility rates in the 2000s. Uh, we talked about America's fertility uh, rate decline last week on the weeds. Obviously, the change over the past few years was not caused by a sudden surge in, in lead emissions. This is just part of the sort of causal background uh, of, of what's been what's been going on in, in the country. And, you know, it just goes to show that, like, I don't know exactly um, – Lead is really bad. I was just, I'm so glad you said it because I was lead. It's sure bad. Pollution is bad. I don't know. To me, I'm not like an environmental journalist. This has not uh, ever been like a passion subject of mine. I don't cover environmental disputes that much, but I am amazed by like the quantity and scope of data that is coming out indicating like harms to environmental toxins that were not even on the radar of people who started trying to address them. And it makes me think that like a lot of the ongoing national conversation about environmental regulation is like really misguided that I mean, in a technical sense, like you can't do cost benefit analysis based on like unseen f future benefits. But it's striking that everything we look back on, right, that like getting lead out of gasoline was not only like a good idea based on the cost benefit analysis available in the 70s, but it was actually a much better idea than was known at the time. Yeah, I mean, this drives home to me how hard it is to cover lead as a toxin, as something that is invisible that rarely makes headline. You know, we were covering it a lot, like other news organizations around the Flint lead water poisoning crisis. And then it kind of trickled off, even though, you know, there was no like resolution to this problem. And I think one of the things that like it still kind of astounds me a little bit is there certainly were these big steps taken to get lead out of gasoline to um, I think a lot of like lead paint out of houses there is still a lot of lead in the American environment. Like it is, you know, I think I'm learning as I'm getting ready to become a parent. We're doing a lot of testing at the house that we bought and like our backyard is full of lead. We're getting our water tested for lead. We'll see what comes out of that, that it's still something we kind of just accept and live with. Like I was actually reading over some old stuff Matt wrote about that, um, the national parks here in D.C., which actually like own and maintain a lot of the parks that kids play in, they just don't monitor for lead. And like 
that's fine. There's no like policy movement to like get the national parks to monitor their surfaces for lead. So it's it's a very odd thing where like you're right. We see this huge benefit to the costs, but we're also because it's like so not obvious. It's not like pollution. Like you don't see it and see like, oh, smog, like that looks problematic that it still like exists in a pretty major way across the country. Yeah. I mean, to just like explain that sort of origin of this, right? So what happens is like there used to be lead in gasoline. You burn gasoline, there'd be lead in the air. This was a really serious environmental problem. Eventually, they phased out lead in gasoline. That had a huge benefit. There's like almost no lead in the air now. So like that's really good. But there's all this old lead just like in the dirt, particularly of cities that were reasonably big cities in the 50s, 60s, and and 70s. Uh, So, you know, some of the kind of like sunbelty cities that didn't have that many people living in them back then are okay. But like northeastern and especially midwestern cities are just like they're full of lead in the dirt everywhere. And like nobody is doing anything about it, like as inadequate as the water situation may be, like there are in fact requirements. Like the Flint thing was a scandal because that's not supposed to happen. Uh, Your local public park or community garden, if you live in a city, being full of toxic lead is like 100% kosher. Like there's no requirement at all. But that's not a scandal. It's like probably do anything about that. But it it is definitely, I mean, you had your backyard. Oh yeah, our backyard's full of lead. Right. And like not because something happens specifically in your backyard, because all the soil everywhere in Washington, D.C. is full of lead unless you explicitly clean it up and nobody has. Yes. And I think one of, the, one of the other things, so this is a little bit of a different direction, but this paper made me think of is I've seen other conversations about fertility and lead that actually go in the opposite direction. So one of the kind of things we've seen in lead research is that it definitely higher higher lead blood levels. There's definitely a strong correlation with lower IQ and less um, impulse control. And for a while, I've been reading things as I cover teen pregnancy about the relationship between fertility and red and lead suggesting that um, that lead has been a key driver of why teen pregnancy was so high in the 1990s, that this was like a generation that had come up, um, you know, when lead was more prevalent in the air and gasoline. And then you see this steep drop off, you know, uh, in the mid 90s, kind of as lead phases out of gasoline. And there was this expect there, there, there has been this theory I've seen put out there in a few academic papers that the deleading of um, of gasoline and getting lead out of the air was responsible at some level for the decline in teen pregnancies we've seen over the past um, nearly thirty years at this point. So it is interesting to see it cutting um, to to kind of like get this other perspective on um, on what's going on there with with fertility. This one, if you read through the actual paper, they're making more of an argument about, you know, that it's not about impulse control, it's just that lead is bad for reproduction, that there are like things that happen to the body um, that we don't need to go super into detail in here, but that lead is just, you know, it makes like a less hospitable place to carry. Right. So it causes baby. cognitive decline yes. that might increase unplanned pregnancies. Yes. But it also causes like biological damage to the reproductive system that yes. might decrease planned and unplanned pregnancies alike. Yes. Yeah, that was sort of my question about this in the context of the larger fertility conversation. It's like obviously if you 
or somebody who wants to get pregnant and can't because of lead exposure or having a harder time than you would have carrying a child to term because of lead exposure, like, that is really tragic for you as a person. I'm trying to sort of figure out how to fit this into the broader context, given that, like, I have not seen it suggested that people who want to get pregnant and can't are a major part or, or can't carry the term, or like a major part of the decline in fertility overall. Right. I've been pregnant for nine months now, and it's like nothing anyone warned me about, like when I was trying to get pregnant, like stay away from lead, probably because there's nothing I could actually do to stay away from lead, because it turns out my yard is full of lead. Um, but you get all these warnings about mercury, about like don't eat fish, because like you might get mercury from that. But lead doesn't really factor into the conversation around fertility in any significant way. And I don't know, you know, at my last house, we like grew vegetables and in like another backyard that was probably full of lead. And I ate a bunch of those vegetables. You know, I never had a doctor who knew I was like a late 20s woman say like, oh, like maybe hold off on those super leaded vegetables you're you're growing in your house. It just doesn't seem to factor into the conversation in the way a lot, you know, you hear about so many things like don't do this, don't do that when you're pregnant, but like lead does not seem to factor into the conversation in any serious way. Yeah. I mean, I do think in part they're assuming that unlike a toddler, you will probably not ingest <laughs> the lead soil sort of regardless. Um, but that's part of what's yeah, interesting. like eating carrots from like my lead garden, like that's probably not right. Great. Well, but also a, a disturbing implication of this research, right, is that because we knew that soil, lead in soil, was getting into small kids and was doing cognitive damage. The assumption was that that had to do with them being filthy toddlers um, and that this was not necessarily an issue for adults, right, is one reason why there are no warnings right. about this given to, to um potentially pregnant or actually pregnant women, you know, you're talking about the sort of like backyard gardening channel, but that doesn't actually seem to be a sufficiently widespread practice to account for this. No. And so there's like there's like a whole nother avenue of research that we now need to do, right? Like the implication here is that lead soil is getting into adults' bloodstreams through not entirely obvious why, but like some kind of dust getting kicked up. You know, there's like but a lot in a way that is leading to biological outcomes that we were not aware of. Because I think you're really good. Right. We focus a lot on like IQ of small children. Right. right. We haven't really focused as much on like, well, what does lead exposure mean for adults? For adults. But also, what does it mean for Because like they don't look here at the question of the in, the in utero impact. No. Right. Because like this is why they're telling you like don't eat fish right. while you're pregnant, right? Because like we obviously understand how fish gets into a human adult human body. Um but the <laughs> but the soy, you know, it's like this is the thing, right? It's like this is not at all on the medical community's radar and also not on the policy community's radar. The mercury thing also is crazy. I mean, like it's true, but it's so weird to treat as like an individual level health problem. Like all of the fish is contaminated with toxic heavy metal. Like, Just don't eat it if you're pregnant. You're fine. <laughs> we don't need to worry about this. Children, no, it's worse because you have the insane chart. Of the omega threes yeah. versus mercury, and it goes not just for pregnant women, but for children, because you're supposed to eat more fish, like salmon's. Like that's that's. We should really just have Emily Oster on here, who wrote the best book about pregnancy ever, to um, walk us through this on a separate. 
Weeds episode. But yeah, but so it's yes. like it's like every week is like Jose needs to get his get his salmon and his shrimp because those are the like approved low mercury fish. But like possibly regulators should not have so much mercury in the air. Yes, perhaps. And lead, now we know. There should probably not be so much lead in the air as well. The ground. The ground, wherever it is. This is one of the things that I do feel like are like perpetual crisis universe. Like lead is a problem that in another world might be getting addressed. But like I was actually just thinking other than sort of continued attention occasionally to Flint, this is like the most I have heard about lead in two years. Yes. Yeah. And it's very, very hard to find this information. Like if you wanted to figure out like am I a woman trying to get pregnant and like an area where I'm really likely to be exposed to lead, where I'm less likely to be exposed to lead. Even finding out information about your own house, about your neighborhood, about like the areas that you live and work in. You know, one thing we were covering the Flint water crisis, um, you just very quickly find that it's incredibly difficult. Like a lot of cities, states, there just aren't requirements to track that kind of thing, which is... um, Worrying, given as we, like, learn more and more in papers like this about the very negative impacts that lead can have. It's really egregious because I think reading between the lines, it's public agencies that know they don't have budget to fix these problems have an incentive to make sure people also cannot be aware of their scope or else they'd be very upset. Uh, But connecting back to our our earlier issue, like, there's really good evidence that reducing um, lead paint in old houses and reducing lead soil in urban neighborhoods would both uh, improve children's uh, sort of cognitive abilities, but also in particular improve their behavioral concerns, right? Mm. That, like, this would be... (laughs) you brought this extremely (laughs) No, 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 but I mean, like, this is a meaningful step to the bucolic education utopia that we don't in the four corners of the education policy world don't seem to be able to, like, get toward would be to, like, actually take community-level steps to improve the community-level environment that people live in. And it's like, I don't know. You know, there's an interesting question. Like, should we treat it as, like, a quote-unquote excuse that people have been exposed to toxic levels of heavy metal all their lives? I don't know. But, like, we could also address the problem. All right. Well, we tied it all together. <laughs> that was that was masterful, Matt. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It always comes together in the end, you know. Uh, everything relates to everything else, which is why we always ask you to check out our other fine Vox Media Podcast Network podcasts, uh, even Turncoat Ezra Klein Show. But really, Today Explained is where it's at, I think, every day, explaining all the things in the world, and frankly, on a more timely basis than we get to here on The Weeds. And uh, so thanks, Libby, for joining us. Uh, This is incredibly uh, enlightening, informative. We should do more education stuff. Uh, Thanks to our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Thanks to all of you for listening. The Weeds will be back on Friday. 